0: Stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. Hello and welcome to Earth Matters. Today on the show we'll be hearing about some of the issues being addressed at the upcoming EcoCity 2017 conference. We'll also hear from waterkeeper Neil Blake about his role protecting the waters of Port Phillip Bay and some of the key challenges that inform his work. First, let's go to an interview by Vivian Langford with uh, Beyond Zero Emissions CEO Vanessa Petrie. And she'll be talking about their presentations on zero carbon communities and zero carbon cement that they're making to the Global Eco City Summit
1: is the real forcer now isn't it? Animals and biodiversity, wild animals, wild nature. It's terribly impacted uh, by climate change but most of us live in cities, most of us are urban, worldwide 80% or or more of people are flocking to cities. So I'd like you to tell me what eco-cities probably means. What a, It's a visionary idea isn't it? We certainly don't live in eco-cities right now. What do you think the future cities that will be Impacted by climate change and also not fueling more climate change will look like. For me,
2: Vivian, um, a just city is central to how I see an ecological <laughs> city. And we're hearing more and more when people are talking about climate change and solutions, they're talking about equity and justice. Um, and I mean, it, it seems quite simple to say this, um, but for for me, a just city is a city where. People have a right to be healthy and they are healthy. Um, They have access to the food they need and want. Um, Mm. They can make choices about how they want to live their life and um, a just ecological city is also a city where we don't take away that for future generations, where we don't take away their right to make choices about how they want to live their life. Um, We don't deplete all of the resources and we give them a choice to to live and fulfil their lives in the way that they would like to.
1: Well, you're going to be presenting at the summit on Beyond Zero's carbon communities. Uh, it's called Zero Carbon Communities. Tell us why these communities are important and who they are.
2: Communities are, we think, essential um, sustainability and climate leaders, And for us, for Beyond Zero Emissions, if we have a look at where we've come over the last 10 years, we've always been a community of climate solution leaders. Um, We look at our first major report, the stationary energy plan. That was a community of of 40 researchers Mm. coming together um, to roll out the sleeves and work out, well, well, how can we decarbonise the electricity sector In 10 years and um, at the time as we all know that was groundbreaking and Mm. you know we know that people um, said that that's ridiculous it can't be achieved but fast forward to 2017 and of course that's now the dominant Mm. story Um, all of the major climate or NGOs and governments we all now know that that's where we need to get to Mm. And, and that was a community that came together to demonstrate that um So zero carbon communities really builds on um, what builds on BZE being a community think tank and takes it to the next step where we're now working with communities at the local level, um, how they can um, get to zero emissions in their own communities. And we see um, for us communities have, been, have, have allowed us to change the narrative around um, zero carbon and um, it just makes sense that communities you know, at, at the local level are going to be incredibly powerful. And I think from my own experience, I've, um, you know, I've worked in local government um, probably in the early 2000s. I was working on um, Ickley Cities for Climate. And at that stage, it was seen to be a real void, policy void in climate at the federal level. But this local government movement um, rolled up their sleeves and was incredibly um, powerful and influential Mm -hmm. with their communities in setting targets, um, working out what their emissions were, setting targets, developing plans. And they got to the point where they were achieving and they could actually quantify and report on the amount of carbon that they Um, had saved through their work and that, I mean, that's left a really deep impression on me throughout my career and I think um, zero carbon communities. We are working um, actively with three communities at the moment.
1: Well, I think that they are on the front line, aren't they? I interviewed the mayor of Byron Bay once and he said, oh, Byron Bay, we're getting so much litigation around the cliff faces being eroded and people have these edge of cliff properties and insurance claims not working and it was a terrible headache for him and he said you know they do need a blueprint they need some help in they're very aware of decarbonizing themselves not that it'll solve the coastal erosion problem but they're thinking of they need to justify a move backwards from the the coast so how do you help communities who, who are pretty aware of it and and want to cut down their emissions
2: well uh Zero carbon communities is really, it's a simple um, way to develop a plan um, to to get to zero emissions. So it's a simple framework where um, communities can, um, guidance where they can come together, um, set a goal, work out their baseline emissions um, and then prepare a transition plan um, of how and where they work out what kind of projects they would like to work on to achieve zero emissions. So really what we're doing is um, we're giving them a simple framework and um, making our research available to them mm. as a tool. Um, but the real, the the skill and the depth of experience in the actual communities themselves um, is what is, is what's so critical. Yeah. I think often when we think about climate leadership, something um, that communities can do and they they do exceptionally well is they can create solutions and they can, um, you know, the ability to develop a vision for where you want to get to is so vital um, to moving to zero emissions. And from, I guess I've I've spent a lot of my career working in government Mm -hmm. um, and I think communities um, are not necessarily encumbered by the things that you might experience in government. They are Mm -hmm. free to be genuine leaders and to envision what they see. But the it's future. also
1: wonderful the expertise that turns up in remote places because I know like that Enova energy company, yeah. they found these people very brilliant people were able to just dovetail into okay, we want to we want to have our own energy system and, and all kind of CEO level people seem to just absolutely Turn uh, up in the country town itself. Oh, uh,
2: that's exactly oh, right. And, and Hepburn
1: and, wind yeah. turbines, the same thing, very ex- expert people. Yeah.
2: If we look at the Latrobe <laughs> Valley, there's an amazing um, skill there. You've got incredibly skilled um, workers in the electricity sector, um, yeah. you know, years and years of experience, and we are working. With the Baw community, Communities, one of our communities that we're working for. And you're completely right. We are incredibly blessed with mm. um, such a diverse range of really skilled people that are coming together um, to build their vision for their zero carbon community. Yeah.
1: Well, that's what we're going to see at the Eco City Summit. Um, the, the talent that's assembled there, and you look at the program, it just makes you think, oh, I have <gasps> met some of those people, and you think, this is like mega brilliance, all just there will be impossible to choose which session to go to for me because there's so many wonderful. Things on display, but um I hope they'll all network and and influence each other so that there'll be a flow on after the conference in in victoria and in australia and i I certainly think this thing of cities leading and state government's leading is the way to go at the moment. Vanessa, you seem a lot more fired up than most oh. people about cement, so do you want to have a little rave about it?
2: Goodness, that's very harsh, Vivienne. <laughs> well, on the 11th of um, August, we'll be releasing Rethinking Cement, which is a plan for how we can manufacture cement without emissions, and Marco will be presenting on his work at Eco City World Summit, and it's incredibly important and I think exciting because, for one... Think of a day when you did not have cement touch your life. Mm. It's impossible. Um, mm-hmm. Cement literally builds the modern world and yet cement is responsible for 8% of all global carbon emissions. That's more than the global car fleet. Um, it's phenomenal. It's it's quite a large amount um, and real, no one has a plan to decarbonise that industry, mm. which is Why we undertook this research work. Um, And there are, it's really exciting, there are a lot of Australian um, cement manufacturers that are doing some very interesting things with alternative cements. And it is possible to get to zero carbon in 10 years. So we are looking forward to sharing that research and starting a conversation with the building and infrastructure industry. And the cement industry and government about how um, we can really we see that how Australia can be world leaders mm-hmm. in alternative cement technology.
1: Perhaps we need Elon Musk to come and offer to build something with it.
2: <laughs> well, um, now that you're talking about that, there's a lot of cement involved in renewable infrastructure. So, I mean, you know, we talk. Some people talk about, you know, the carbon um, budget that we have left, and of course, it, you need to, you know admit carbon to manufacture renewable technology but cement could be part of the answer of actually producing the infrastructure without emissions
0: you're listening to earth matters produced in the studios of 3cr in melbourne and broadcast nationally thanks to the community radio network We just heard Vivian Langford speaking with Beyond Zero Emissions CEO, Vanessa Petrie. And if you want to find out more about the EcoCity Summit, you can go to ecocity2017.com. And to find out more about the work of Beyond Zero Emissions, go to bze.org.au. Now we'll hear an interview by Jan Bartlett with waterkeeper Neil Blake. The Water Keepers are a network of community advocates working to protect waters worldwide. Neil, there's lots of
3: keepers around the world, aren't there?
4: Yes, uh, and there are um, Sound Keepers and Coast Keepers and River Keepers and Creek Keepers. That's, that's really a fantastic thing. Basically, the group is under the umbrella of Water Keeper Alliance, which is... Uh, based in the United States but it has a, a global network though of community advocates for waterways which is a great concept really.
3: started in the US?
4: It started in the US I think it was in the Hudson River probably around about 40 years ago and was, interestingly enough it was from uh, people who are from the fishing community you know so we weren't happy about the, the toxins and various things getting into the, into the river and uh, so they started agitating to get pollution cleaned up and, and more to the point stopped from getting in there in the first place. And that really is where the the concept came from.
3: Most countries in the world have got
4: keepers oh, of some uh, sort? Uh, I'm not sure of the exact number, but a couple of hundred have, yeah. So, yeah, from Iraq, you know, all sorts of diverse places, some in South America, uh, you know, and there's several in, in Australia. In fact, uh, there's a Yarra, Yarra River Keeper and a Werribee River Keeper and the Port Phillip Bay Keeper. So we, we work closely together to uh, promote healthy waterways it's an interesting sort of a a role to be in really and uh, along the way you meet lots of positive people doing fantastic things. Such as? Well uh, I was fortunate to uh, meet the Water Watch volunteers who work with Melbourne Water monitoring different aspects of of waterways and creeks and rivers uh, in the Melbourne region Uh, Recently, and uh, yeah, wonderful people uh, just doing good work in their areas. It's really heartening to sort of meet so many positive people.
3: And there was a conference recently?
4: Uh, Each year, an annual conference uh, generally in the United States, or it has been to date. And uh, April, the Echo Centre Executive Officer uh, went over to attend there and uh, also... uh, Andrew Kelly, the Yarra River Keeper, and John Forrester, the Werribee River Keeper, were there, so flying the flag for for Australia. Uh, they made all sorts of interesting people. Uh, they, April brought back a fantastic CD of music from the Bahamas, which has got all those sort of uh, activist songs there in a in a dance music beat. <laughs> fantastic stuff. The idea of it is to have community advocates for waterways, as I mentioned, and uh, the, in simple terms, the aim is to have waters that are drinkable fishable and swimmable so uh, generally providing health for the environment as well as uh, people
3: Did they bring any new ideas back with them
4: not really i mean uh there, there's all sorts of ideas so uh, but uh you know i'm, I'm not sure if there, if there ever has been a new idea in the last 150 years Do you, Gem, you, you could help me out there It's that, the ones that actually managed to take root i suppose that are, that are the ones that get remembered
3: well, let's talk about the health of um, the bay at the moment.
4: The health of the bay at the moment is, um, we have had the, I think it is at the driest June on record or, or thereabouts. Uh, so very low rainfall. So um, that'll be interesting to see uh, what's going on, how that pans out, because the general, the general um, concept is that if there's a drought on land, there's a drought in the ocean. So uh, you do need influx of nutrients from land, in, into the waterways to trigger the food chain etc so it's not necessarily going to be a disaster but uh, there's some interesting things going on there. in fact about a week ago there was a um or in in the past week a whole bunch of puffer fish or porcupine fish washed up dead down on the foreshore at frankston that's why we're still sort of looking into why that uh, event occurred uh, apparently though there have been related uh, fish deaths uh uh, down at Malakuta, there were a thousand leather jackets not that long ago washed up as well, and then a bit further around up to, along the coast, a whole bunch of other fish. And uh, apparently, the there's a cold current that's actually been six to seven degrees cooler, that coming down along the uh, the eastern coast, which uh, could be have what's caused that. But it's hard to get to the bottom of these things in, in straight away though.
3: I have been reading that the, the sea is getting warmer, not colder.
4: Well, that's right. I mean, uh, and perhaps that's why there might have been such a shock <laughs> for these animals. Is that they, um, certainly the sea surface temperatures from broom in a clockwise direction around to South Australia over the past two years have actually been uh, above average or higher than ever before. So that's exceptional and it's possibly got something to do with the weather patterns that we've been experiencing over this June. It's been quite extraordinary. We seem to have had a constant high-pressure system just hovering over southern Australia, which is why there's been virtually no wind and no rain.
3: Does that mean in one sense that the bay is a bit cleaner because there's less rubbish being Washed down the drains? Yeah, that's
4: right. And um, the beaches are a bit cleaner as a result of that too because uh, we do get a lot of trash um, washed out, flushed off the streets. But if we don't have that rainfall, then it doesn't happen. Uh, There are little bits getting in, but uh, not to the extent that often in wetter years would occur.
3: And what's happening sort of statewide or Melbourne-wide to educate people about the fact that whatever gets dropped in the street ends up in the bay?
4: There has been a litter hotspots program which has been uh, going on for uh, probably about five years now. That's the Cleaner Yarren Bays program from the state government and there's been quite a significant investment of money into various projects at a local level to address litter issues. The other one, I guess, is that Melbourne Water are currently... um, developing catchment management strategies for uh, different catchments around the Melbourne region, at the moment working on the Maribyrnong catchment. So all of those um, issues, such as uh, litter, get rolled into those kind of strategies too. So I think uh, I'm feeling pretty hopeful, really, that we're on the way to a plastic-free bay. I mean, that's what, what I'd like to put out there, just to raise the bar and say this is what we're actually aspiring to achieve. There's a lot of wider community awareness of the issue now and uh, I think that uh, a lot of that's come about through the litter Hotspots program because there's just been more resources, I guess, put to, uh, to the topic of litter in general. At a local level, many more people are getting exposed to, and to the realisation that uh, the, the streets are connected to the bay.
3: And, of course, even though they things might say or manufacturers might say, well, this plastic is biodegradable, people have the idea that that's good. I went to a health food shop. I was quite shocked when they, I saw they had plastic bags and they've got yeah. biodegradable written all over and it's a good mm. thing. It, yeah. It's not necessarily, is it?
4: No, well, we're all biodegradable, Jan, but uh, we might be a bit unpleasant at various points in the <laughs> in the process. <laughs> yeah, so that's right, bags that are biodegradable, they don't just disappear in a puff of smoke and uh, so they can be uh, damaging to the environment for some time during the process.
3: And it's the little bits, when, when they do break down into the tiny bits that are often the danger yeah, to the fish right. and the birds? That's
4: it, they're, they're easily ingested the smaller they get. All of that sort of stuff. I mean, the, the, the boomerang bags movement is a fantastic one. You know, where there's wonderful people out there in, in the suburbs that are making uh, shopping bags out of uh, old pillowcases and things like that, and, and making them available at supermarkets to people to pick up and, and use. Fantastic stuff. That's that's happening. To, people are saying, "Look, we're sick of uh, this business as usual stuff. We we we, we want to have a, a, a positive future. It's going to be plastic bag free."
3: There are places in the world, and even in Australia, where it is plastic bag free.
4: Many states around Australia have actually moved away from um, plastic shopping bags, and uh, there's still campaigning going on in Victoria at the moment. There's one of the last bastions of <laughs> plastic bags to have why that is it so of-
3: difficult to get it in Victoria?
4: I guess it's just a matter of, like in all politics, that people do the numbers and uh, if there's there's enough people in the community who don't care less or are not interested, well then uh, they're not going to draw it flat uh, by doing something that could be seen as contentious by that group. I I guess I'm a political pragmatist and uh, things happen when the community... uh, sets the agenda, really, and, and makes politicians aware that uh, if they don't do things, then it's at their peril.
3: But in a sense, the community has to be educated.
4: That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's an And if event. that
3: doesn't happen, nothing happens.
4: That's exactly right. I, I've really got a strong belief that uh, policy begins, really, from community awareness. Mm-hmm. And if the community is, lacks awareness or... Or don't careness, <laughs> then uh, yeah, we're in trouble. Our policies will remain sort of behind the times and uh, n- not good for the environment.
3: What else is happening down at the F- Port Phillip Eco Centre?
4: We're going through a bit of a transition at the moment. We've got a couple of new projects that have come on board, and um, we're pleased that uh, with the Port Phillip Bay Environment Fund, we've got a couple of larger. Um, projects that have been approved well, one's called the living waters Workbees. the concept of that is um, that people who install rainwater tanks or rain gardens or systems that are uh, actually promoting healthy and good effect efficient water use can have their installation costs uh, a rebate contributed towards them through volunteers participating in the healthy waterways activity it's a way of connecting community uh, and uh, creating uh, effective water infrastructure but also connecting those people who might not necessarily have got involved in a community group or you know, participated in a beach cleanup or whatever to actually get, get out there and, and make some positive contributions so that's pretty exciting. We've we've run a similar project that in the Ulster Creek catchment a couple of years ago, and that worked really well. Got a lot of schools involved, you know. So it's getting people active, but also coming up with some practical, tangible outcomes.
3: And schools is the important bit, isn't
4: it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's really terrific to see what uh, people in the young kids—I shouldn't call them kids—they're uh, young. Uh, leaders and ambassadors really for, for the environment. They're really setting the bar, I suppose, for their parents really who might not have been aware that uh, uh, if they're going to have a, a positive future then uh, there needs to be a bit of behaviour change and, uh, and choices made in, in what people are consuming and purchasing.
3: And you find that the schools and the children living around the bay are more aware maybe than the schools and kids a bit further out?
4: I guess um, the the key point of awareness is an understanding that the streets in the suburbs actually are connected to the bay, you know, by the drainage stormwater drainage system, and uh, many people don't know that. We've developed a litter audit method, which um, enables people to do spend an hour just auditing a street area in the suburbs, and there's another method uh, which will enable auditing of creek and riverbanks. And the third one for uh, beaches. So uh, we call it the the straight to sea litter audit method. We're hopeful that if we can engage in maybe the scouts movement, for example, or or others in uh, auditing sites regularly in the catchments around the bay, as well as beaches, we'll be able to paint a very clear picture about where different types of litter are coming from, have something, a more compelling sort of story to tell which will uh, make people who are just oblivious of the issue to sort of start to understand.
3: Is there a pattern though of what you find, what ends up in the, the drains?
4: You know, there'll be things like noodles, for example, that are going to, uh, or pre production pallets of plastic that are going to be coming from industrial areas. Have and, you got
3: uh, onto them to stop them doing it yet?
4: Uh, well, a number of people, uh, a number of companies have actually signed on to the um, uh, protocol. Operation Clean Sweep protocol that um, Tangaroa Blue have been talking to them about so uh, that conversation is happening. What
3: Uh, does a noodle look like?
4: They look a little bit like a um, a, a piece a small piece of gravel or a grain of sand Uh, they're they're about five millimeters across small plastic um, and many of them are kind of an opaque color you know so they just look like sand on the beach. Others, though, are coloured, you know, bright yellow, bright red, bright blue. Yeah, you do need to get your eye in to actually find them, but there was a big um, find down at Rye Beach only about three weeks ago, I guess. There were uh, almost 3,000 collected off that beach in one day, and that was a couple of days after there'd been an eight millimetre rainfall event. That was probably the only rain we had in June, I think. That, that highlights, again, just the connection between the, the bay and the, and, the, and the catchments.
3: I think I asked you this before, the, the health of the bay, what needs to be done to make it healthier?
4: Obviously, we need to, with Melbourne's population continuing to grow, we got three quarters of Victoria's population live in catchments around the bay, so it's, we need to be really considering the impacts of human activities around it and particularly what gets into the stormwater system as a result of those human impacts. Trying to not overload it with certain uh, nutrients like nitrogen, uh, you know, that, that's a key area to be looking at. Then there's phosphates, but, uh, you yeah, know, there's also other, um, you know, like sewage and uh, obviously the, the Western treatment plant and keeping that working effectively, preventing... Uh, Sewer leaks and that sort of thing are, are all part of the, the jigsaw puzzle of um, keeping the bay healthy. We want a certain level of nutrients, but but not an overload. Then, as times are changing, though, you know, we we might find temperatures will be slightly altered. Be, there, there's a, a constant dynamic of change as sea levels are rising. You know, so we we need to be looking at how we're going to manage coasts and, and beaches into the future as, as uh, they are displaced by sea level rise. You know, so there's a whole range of activities we need to um, be on top of and, and aware of and resource, more to the point, to be able to keep the bay healthy.
0: This is Earth Matters and we just heard an interview by Jan Bartlett speaking with waterkeeper Neil Blake about his work protecting the waters of Port Phillip Bay in Victoria. And you can find out more about this global network of around 300 different organizations and affiliates at waterkeeper.org. Thanks for tuning in to Earth Matters. This show was produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and is heard nationally thanks to the Community Radio Network. Thanks so much to the Community Broadcasting Federation for their generous financial support. And thanks to Jan Bartlett and Vivian Lagford for providing content for today's program. We hope you enjoyed today's show and tune in again next week for more news on the environment from a social justice perspective. To listen to our podcasts from previous shows, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters and you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, EarthMRadio. If you want to get in contact, you can email us on earthmatters3cr at gmail.com.